Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week 16, Judges chapters 9 and 10. Okay, we're going to continue today in Judges chapter 9, the story of Avimelech, known more to us in English as Abimelech. And he was the son of Gideon, born to a Shechemite concubine. Now let's briefly review. Gideon had 70 sons by his legal wives, and one son by a Canaanite woman from the city of Shechem. And this meant that Gideon had become a very wealthy man, and and so he lived a kingly lifestyle. Gideon's 70 legal wives were Hebrew women. His concubine, Avimelech's mother, was the exception. Now, as Avimelech matured, he became brutally ambitious. He wanted to begin his own kingdom. So he strategized, and he decided that the best place to start was with the ethnically mixed city of Shechem, his mother's family's hometown. Now, Shechem was a city that called Baal, its god. There was a temple to Baal built there. And both the Canaanites and the Hebrews who lived in Shechem bowed down to this god. Avimelech convinced his mother's family to back him in approaching the townspeople with a, propos- with a proposition. Let me be your king. And they agreed. The underlying reasoning was that Avimelech appealed to both major ethnic groups since he was half Canaanite and half Hebrew. This step of his plan accomplished, Avimelech took the Machiavellian approach to obtaining and maintaining his hope for power and authority by hiring some thugs from Shechem to help him murder all 70 of his brothers. However, one brother, the youngest, escaped the slaughter. And the surviving son of Gideon was named Yotam. We tend to know him in the English rendering as Jotham. And, And when Yotam found out that the people of Shechem intended on crowning Avimelech, as their king, he climbed up Mount Gerizim that overlooked the city and shouted out a prophetic parable of warning to the naive citizens. Now this parable that he spoke consisted of the story of a forest of trees that represented a group of people that were looking for a king to rule over them. And the trees approached First, an olive tree, who refused their offer. Then they approached a fig tree, who also refused, and then a grapevine, who did the same. Each had the same reason for their refusal of what seemed like such an amazing honor and a rise, a raise rather, in their status. Their reasoning was, God had created them for their own special purpose, They were each bearing the fruits of that purpose and to abandon that divine purpose merely to rule over some other trees 
would be a misuse of their God-ordained gifts. So as a last resort, these trees approach the loathsome bramble, a sticker bush that grew upon the soil like, like a carpet lays on a floor. Right, low to the ground and it's nothing but a menace it serves no good use whatsoever okay. the bramble of course jumps at this opportunity to rule over these mighty trees but adds a not so subtle warning that it fully expects the trees to submit to it right, and for those trees to fully depend upon its goodness and mercy as it sees fit if the trees do not submit the bramble will destroy the trees. <clears throat> Yotam ended his parable with a curse. As a result of Avimelech's murder of Gideon's sons, God will intervene and cause Avimelech to destroy the people of Shechem, and the people of Shechem will do the same to him. After three years, under Avimelech's selfish and oppressive rule, the people of Shechem had had enough. And a friction between their, them and their king was reaching a point of combustion. Let's continue the story from there. Open your Bibles to Judges chapter 9. We're going to re- read from verse 22 to the end. That's page uh, 282 in your complete Jewish Bible. <clears throat> Judges 9, 22. Avimelech was chief over Israel for three years. But God sent a spirit of discord between Avimelech and the king of Shechem, so that the men of Shechem dealt treacherously with Avimelech. This came about so that the crime against the seventy sons of Yerubael might be avenged, and the responsibility for their bloody death be placed on Avimelech, their brother, who murdered them, and on the men of Shechem who helped him kill his brothers. So the men of Shechem sent out men to ambush him on the mountaintops. They robbed everyone who went past them, and Abimelech was told about it. Well, Gael, the son of a slave, came with his brothers and went on to Shechem, and the men of Shechem put their trust in him. They went out into the field, gathered the grapes, and pressed the juice out of them, then held a feast, and went into the house of their god to eat and drink, and there they insulted Abimelech. Gael, the son of a slave, said, who is Avimelech? Think of the contrast with Shechem. Why should we serve Avimelech? Isn't he the son of Yerubael? Isn't Zebul his officer? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem. Why should we serve Avimelech? If I were in control of this people, I'd get rid of Avimelech. Then addressing his words to Avimelech, he said, Come out and fight. I don't care if you make your army even bigger. When Zavul, the ruler of the city, heard the words of Gael, the son of a slave, he was enraged. He sent messengers to Avimelech in Tormah with this message. Gael, the son of a slave, and his brothers have come to Shechem, and they're inciting the city against you. You and the men with you should come up now at night and lie in wait in the field. In the morning, get up early, as soon as the sun rises, attack the city. Then when Gael and the men with him come out to fight you... Do whatever you can to them. Avimelech and all the men with him came up by night, lay in wait against Shechem in four groups. Gaal, the son of a slave, went out and stationed himself at the entrance to the city gate. And then 
Abimelech and his men arose from their ambush. When Gael saw the men, he said to Zebul, Look, there are men coming down from the mountaintops. But Zebul answered, Oh, you're seeing the shadows of the mountains, as if they were men. Gael said again, Look, there are men coming down from the main hill in the land, and one group is even coming down down the road from Fortune Teller's Oak. And Zebul said to him, Well, where's your mouth now? You said, Who is Abimelech? Why should we serve him? Aren't these the people who you despise? Go on out and fight them. So Gael went out, leading the men of Shechem, and fought Abimelech. But Abimelech gave chase, and Gael took to flight. Many fell wounded, strewn, all along the way to the city gate. Then Abimelech took up residence in Arumah, and Zebul drove out Gael and his brothers, so that they could not live in Shechem. But the very next day, the people went out into the field, and Abimelech was told about it. He took his men, divided them into three groups, and lay in wait in the field. And when he saw the people going out of the city, he came out of hiding and slaughtered them. Abimelech and his group rushed forward and occupied the entrance to the city gate, while the other two groups attacked all those in the field and killed them. Abimelech fought against the city all that day, captured it, killed its people, destroyed its buildings, and sowed its land with salt. When all of the men in the fortress at Shechem had heard about this, they took refuge in the stronghold of the temple of Eel Barith. Abimelech was told that all the men from the Shechem fortress had gathered together, so he led all of his men up to Mount Salmon, where he took an axe in his hand, cut off a tree branch, and laid it on his shoulder. Then he said to all those with him, Quick, do just what you saw me do. They all did likewise, each man cutting off his branch, and they followed Abimelech. They put the branches up against the stronghold, lit them on fire, and burned down the stronghold, so that all the people from the Shechem fortress died, about a thousand men and women. Then Abimelech went to Tevates, set up camp against Tevates, and captured it. But there was a fortified tower inside the city. And all the men and the women took refuge in it, everyone in the city. They shut themselves inside and went up unto the roof of the tower. However, when Abimelech approached the tower and attacked it, and then came up close to the tower's door in order to burn it down, a woman dropped an upper millstone on Abimelech's head, cracking his skull. He quickly called out to the young man holding his armor, Draw your sword and finish me off, so that people won't say a woman killed me. So his attendant ran him through, and he died. When the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, they all went back home. This is how God paid back Abimelech for the wrong he had done to his father in murdering his 70 brothers. God also repaid the men of Shechem for all the wrong they had done. On them came the curse of Yotam, the son of Yerubael. I think it's fitting that is the 2008 campaign for the presidency of the United States is mercifully winding to a close (laughs) that we're studying the book of Judges which has at its root the issue of national leadership up to chapter 9 we saw that the problem for Israel wasn't just a lack of leadership, but also a lack of leaders. What few leaders they had didn't lead. They just enjoyed the benefits of their position. 
most of which the leaders had obtained by birthright, not merit. Thus, the essentially leaderless Israelites would follow their own human nature, which was invariably to pull away from Yehovah and His commands and to adopt the sensually attractive gods and customs of their neighbors. In response to that, God would send some foreign nation to oppress Israel. Then Israel would call out to God for help. And finally, the Lord would raise up a shofet, a judge, to deliver Israel from their oppression. Finally, that judge would rule over Israel for a time. Now, the various judges all God appointed, generally provided godly, albeit imperfect, leadership over Israel for some number of years, during which time Israel prospered and enjoyed peace. But here in Judges chapter 9, Israel, actually just a small portion of Israel, found itself under some satanically inspired leadership, and we're reading about how that happens and what the inevitable results are from it. Now, Avimelech was not God's chosen leader for Israel. So Gideon's sole remaining son used his own cunning and violent ambitions to gain power. And in this, we learn some valuable lessons about leadership as regards the ruling over a nation. Now, it's interesting that Avimelech knew he could not force himself upon the people of Shechem. Rather, he had to convince them to choose him. Avimelech didn't march into Shechem with an army and take the city. He didn't threaten the city with violence if they refused to have him. Rather, he asked the people to make him their king because he convinced them it would be to their benefit. He made promises to them that sounded good to their ears. But nobody considered his true character. And even after he murdered every last one of his own flesh and blood siblings, Shechem still wanted him as their king. Now, it is self-evident that not every last citizen of Shechem agreed with the choice of Avimelech. They didn't all participate or want that mass murder, nor did they even all want a king. Yet, centuries before there was even a concept of democracy, the majority often ruled. And that is what happened here. The majority can exert tremendous peer pressure to twist the arms of the minority to go along with them. In tribal societies, going against the will of the majority could be a matter of keeping or losing your livelihood, your family, or even your mortal life. The problem is that even though likely many within Shechem didn't choose Avimelech, they went along with the crowd. And they accepted his rule. I mean, because we certainly read of no overt opposition. And as we see in this story, those who did not choose Avimelech suffered and died alongside those who did. From a spiritual standpoint, perhaps some of those who objected 
will receive divine pardon. But from an earthly standpoint, there would be no distinction. All will share the fate of the nation's choice of leadership and in the results of that leader's decisions. People born under a king or a dictator have little or no choice in the matter of national leadership. But as we've seen in the Bible and in secular human history, it doesn't matter. The innocent always die alongside the wicked. Those who have true freedom to choose their leaders, as we do in America and several Western democracies also do, therefore carry the utmost responsibility for not only the choice of our leaders, but then their decisions and actions. We're not able to choose a leader and then just divorce ourselves from his policies and actions, even though we might like to do so. Never in history has there been a freer, more open, non-threatening system of choosing national leadership than in America. Never. We also even have legal means to remove leaders who've deceived us. And I can tell you with absolute confidence that we, as individual citizens of America and as believers in Jesus Christ, who live and vote in America, we bear more responsibility before God for our leaders and their choices than for any population in the history of mankind. So we had better look beyond a candidate's lofty rhetoric and promises and campaign slogans and the endless series of eight-point plans because we will all bear a common consequence of his or her decisions. In the end, that leader's harmony with God and understanding of who God is his own personal history, his own personal ambitions, his moral compass, and especially in our day, his stance on Israel's right to their own land, will determine whether we've made a wise national choice or a suicidal one. Shechem ceased to exist as a national entity for a long time after they so unwisely chose the amoral and ungodly Avimelech to rule over them. I tell you again, history is cyclical. And we today are reliving the era of the judges. Take it to the bank. Verse 22 explains that for three years the Shechemites continued to follow Avimelech as he desired, despite Yotam's warning, and now the judgment of God that had been patiently in abeyance begins to descend. The timing was God's, not man's, even though the men of Shechem were totally unaware of it. The Lord planted the seeds of discord between the citizens of Shechem and their chosen king by sending a literal evil spirit, a demon, to excite their own evil inclinations. 
Abimelech had chosen Arumah as his personal place of residence and he placed a hand-picked governor to rule in his stead over the city of Shechem. Zebul lived in Shechem. He guided the city. He made regular reports to his boss, Avimelech. That Avimelech chose to live elsewhere was the greatest insult to those who had made his reign possible. His very own family lived in Shechem. Put their own reputations on the line to get him coronated. And you can be sure there was an implied understanding that here at Shechem would be his seat of government over his kingdom. But after three years, the people of Shechem caught on to Abimelech and realized that only his personal agenda for power mattered and they were but a means to an end. These people, who were hardly particularly moral or just themselves, made plans to counter Avimelech's efforts as a first step towards deposing him. And among those plans was the one stated in verse 25 where it says they stationed liars in wait in the mountaintops above Shechem. In other words, they put some willing men upon the twin hills of uh, Ebal and Gerizim so that they could look down upon the main trade route all right, that went through Shechem. And these trade routes connected the east with the west, the north with the south, and these men robbed the caravans that came through. Now, not only did this action give these robbers a pretty good boost in their personal income, it caused a great deal of trouble for Avimelech. Of course, that was the whole intent. See, kings of this era forced taxes and tolls from the traders and merchants who traveled these trade routes that ran through their territories. Part of the reason the traders agreed to pay those tolls was that they were to receive the local king's protection from thieves and nomads. If the local king failed in providing security and the thievery got too out of hand, traders would avoid the area and the king would lose a major source of funds for his treasury. Avimelech soon learned of this, understood immediately what was happening, and so the stage was set for a showdown. Well, about this time, a new character enters the scene. His name is Gaal, the son of Ebed. Now, without a doubt, Gaal, son of Abed, was not this man's real name. It was actually a rather nasty epithet or a nickname that he became known by at a later date because it means the abhorred son of a slave. Not likely a name you'd give your child. This Gaal led a band of men who bore no allegiance to any particular tribe or king Rather, they were kind of like pirates or, or, or privateers who would ride into an area they thought they could take control and take charge. Or maybe they could be hired like a mercenary army and do the bidding of a king or a group of people if there was sufficient gain in it for them. Under Jehovah's providential guidance, this group of thugs arrives at Shechem at the time of the grape harvest 
and the accompanying festival. Since we now understand the rather amoral character of the residents of Shechem, Gaal and his bunch fitted right in, and the townspeople trusted him. Well, Gaal showed up at a very auspicious time, the great New Year event of the pagan Mystery Babylon religions. The main event of this celebration was the gathering of grapes, fermenting their juice into wine, and then having a long, drunken party in honor of Baal. Its counterpart in Israel was Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. In fact, when we look at the original Hebrew in verse 27, where it says in English, take a look at it, they went into the house of their God to eat, drink, and make merry. Depending on your translation, what it actually says is, they went to the house of their God to give Helulim. Helulim. This means praise offerings. And it's directly connected to the Hebrew word Halel. Praise. That is central to the Feast of Tabernacles. So here we have words reserved for describing the singing of praises to Yehovah, but they're being used to sing praises to Baal. Under the influence of the Canaanites, Sukkot melded with the pagan New Year wine fest and became nothing more than a time of overindulgence, decadence, and it lost all spiritual meaning. Does that sound familiar? We're now on the cusp of the holiday season. When Christians choose to commemorate the birth of our Savior. A worthy occasion of remembrance, to be sure. But it has been so heavily influenced by secular ways to the point that at least outwardly, and to a majority of our population, it's simply party time with no spiritual meaning. Fir trees and ornaments, lavish parties, Santa Claus and a reindeer, going into debt to buy unneeded but desired material possessions, all melded with praising God for sending His Messiah. How very strange and how very sad. There is not one meaningful shred of difference between how our Messiah's advent is celebrated today by too many of his followers and what we're witnessing in verse 27 of Judges 9. Because the Israelites represented the majority population of Shechem and they felt perfectly justified in adopting these completely pagan practices in lieu of the God-ordained ones Moses gave to them. This is a very valuable lesson that we really need to act upon. At this time of feasting and drinking, Gael used that moment to challenge the people of Shechem to openly revolt against Abimelech. He says, who is this Abimelech that we should bow down to him? Okay. After all, Abimelech is nothing more than a son of Yerubael. Remember, Yerubael is a nickname for Gideon. 
And it means Baal fighter. Here the people of Shechem, Hebrew and Canaanite, were having a drunken bash in honor of Baal. And Gaal says, why should we have a king over us who is the son of a man who hates Baal? And even broke down his altar. Gale goes on to say that if they're to have a ruler, he really ought to be from the line of Hamor, the father of Shechem. Now, think back. Okay. Uh, Hamor was a Hivite king who founded the city of Shechem. So now, whereas Abimelech used his Canaanite, or perhaps Hivite, blood as a reason for the people of Shechem to invite him to be their king, now Gaal is reminding the people that Avimelech's also half Hebrew. And so Gaal's using his Hebrew blood against him now. Oh, what a tangled web we weave, huh? Then Gaal throws out a not-so-hidden hint. He says, you know, if I was in control of this people, I'd get rid of that Avimelech. In other words... If you'll help me, if you'll agree to help me dispose of Abimelech, I'll become your leader. Then in his inebriated state, he throws down the gauntlet to Abimelech and challenges him to come to Shechem with whatever loyal army he has and fight. Well, when Zebul, the governor of Shechem, who's loyal to Abimelech, hears this, he sends a message to his boss about this impending revolt. That Zebul was able to continue in his position in the face of this growing and uh, now unhidden rebellious, rebellious mindset speaks to, to, to the divided nature of Shechem. Just as there was no consensus in choosing Abimelech to be king three years earlier, there is no consensus to revolt against him now. Zebul suggests to Abimelech that he hurries, gets his army together, comes to Shechem under the cover of darkness, and then lay in wait out in the fields that surround the city. Then when the dawn breaks, he should attack. Gael's men are bound to respond in kind, and by drawing them out from behind the city walls into the open... If Avimelech is properly prepared, he should be able to defeat Gael. Avimelech acted in accordance with Gael's advice. Well, in the morning, Zebul and Gael were standing inside the open city gate, both, for different reasons, no doubt, looking to see if Avimelech was anywhere to be seen. Obviously, Gael didn't know that Zebul had sent for Abimelech. When Gaal saw Abimelech's men moving down from the mountainside, with the morning light still dim and the shadows long, Zebul tried to convince him that he was just seeing things. All right, but of course, this was just to give Abimelech's men a little more time to get closer before they were discovered and the alarm was sounded. But when it simply wasn't possible to conceal that plan any longer, Zavale turned and flung Gale's boastful comment right back into his face. Where's your mouth now, Gale? 
Well, now Zebul turns the tables and provokes Gael to take his men and leave the safety of the thick defensive walls of Shechem to go out and take on the man he had so little regard for. No details are given of the battle, just the outcome. As verse 40 says, But Avimelech gave chase, and Gael took flight. Many fell wounded, strewn all along the way to the city gate. Avimelech went back to Arumah, and Zavul was left there in the city of Shechem to drive out what few members of Gael's gang remained inside Shechem. With Gael now banished from Shechem, Avimelech could do almost as he pleased in bringing full destruction to those who rebelled against him. The morning after the last of Gael's men were expelled, the regular townsfolk of Shechem went out the city gates to tend their fields, figuring that the fighting was over. There's time to just get back to normal life. Wrong. Avi Malek and his men were laying in wait to take revenge. And as soon as all these Shechemite townsfolks were out in the fields and deep into their hoeing and pruning and harvesting, the attack came. Avimelech used the rather standard battle, battle tactic of that era, of dividing his men into three groups. The one he led immediately raced to the city gates, where he secured the entrance into the city. By doing this, the townsfolk were caught out in the fields. They had nowhere to run and hide. They were slaughtered out in the fields. When this wanton act was completed, Avimelech led his troops inside the city to begin destruction there. The text says the fighting and destruction went on all day. Right? And he effected a rather senseless slaughter of all the inhabitants of Shechem, destroyed all the buildings, and sowed the land with salt, it says. Sowing the land with salt is not literal. Okay, although it may have been ceremonial. Okay, it simply means that the land in the city became a wasteland, unusable. Now, as happens in an aristocracy, while the common folks of the town were fighting and dying, the upper, the upper class, who lived in another area of the city, made a mad dash to a place for their special protection. They fled from their normal quarters inside the city to, a, to the fortress temple of their god, here called El Berith, meaning covenant with El. El was the Canaanite word for highest god, usually actually considered to even be above Baal. Of course, we find that the Hebrews borrowed that word to refer to Jehovah early on in the Bible. Now, while the move from inside the city was obviously because the lords of Shechem, the aristocrats, and their families felt that the temple fortress was the strongest building now available to them, without doubt, the main reason they went there was the hope that their god, El, would protect them. Well, when Avimelech observed this, he took countermeasures. He led his men to a nearby hill that had a dense growth of fir trees. 
He and his men chopped off some of their branches, brought them to this temple tower, now packed with the upper crust of Shechem, laid the branches against it, and lit them on fire. The greenness of the branches would have made for a horrific, choking smoke while it burned through the wooden door and wooden roof that were standard for buildings in that time thus killing many where they sat huddled together and then driving others out to be struck down. Over a thousand men and women were killed at the base of El's temple. Well, with the central city of Shechem now in ruins, Abimelech moved against the neighboring city of Tebetz, okay, that lay about nine miles northeast of Shechem. And apparently the people of this city had acted in sympathy with Shechem. The central part of the city of Tibet was taken rapidly, and many of the city people, not just the aristocracy, as in Shechem, fled to the refuge of what the Bible calls a fortified tower. Never one to waste a successful tactic, Abimelech used fire to force those who took refuge in the tower to come out, but this time there was quite a different result. As Abimelech approached the side of the tower, to take hateful revenge by personally setting the branches laid against it on fire, a woman on the roof flung an upper millstone over the edge, striking a vimelech on his head and crushing his skull. Now, an upper millstone was usually around 15 inches in diameter and 3 to 4 inches thick. It would have weighed probably around 20 pounds. Okay. It must have struck a glancing blow. Because if it had hit his cranium bluntly, he would have died instantly. However, he was aware enough to know that it was a woman who had done him in. So he asked his armor bearer to run him through so that he didn't suffer what was seen as the humiliation of being killed by a woman in battle. Well, verses 56 and 57 really needs to leave an indelible mark on our memories. God pays back. Perhaps we as his followers are not to pay back. But God does. God repaid Avimelech and the men of Shechem for all the wrong he had done. You know, if God doesn't pay back, then his justice system is a farce. What is justice? if there is no punishment for a crime. Paul brings this exact principle forth in Galatians 6. In 6, 7 he says, Don't delude yourselves. No one makes a fool of God. A person will reap what he sows. God's law of retribution will not be foiled. It may not happen in this world, but it will in the next. Now let's move on to chapter 10. I'm going to get a little bit of chapter 10 in today. <clears throat> After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tolah, the son of Puah, the son of Dodo, from the tribe of Issachar. He lived in Shamir in the hills of Ephraim. He judged Israel 23 years, and when he died, he was buried in Shamir. After him arose Yair from Gilead. He judged Israel 22 years. He had 30 sons who rode on 30 young donkeys. 
they own 30 cities, which are called Havot Yair to this day. They're in the territory of Gilead. When Yair died, he was buried in Kamon. As a preface to this short chapter, which we just got the first few verses of, let me mention that by all rights, we probably ought to pause right here and study the book of Ruth. Because this is about the time in history that the story of Ruth occurred. Although it could have been maybe as early as towards the end of Gideon's life. That's right. Ruth's adventures took place during the time of the judges. Right? Before Samson came onto the scene. But for the sake of continuity, we're going to stay in the book of Judges and follow it to its conclusion. But then we'll immediately, at the end of the book of Judges, study the book of Ruth. Now, chapter 10 begins by briefly introducing us to two of the five so-labeled minor judges, Tola and Yair. Now, there's really very little detail about either of them. We're told that Tola arose to save Israel, but that's about it. He ruled them as a judge for 23 years and was from the tribe of Issachar. But he lived, interestingly enough, in the hills of Ephraim. In other words, he did not live in the territory given by allotment to Issachar. Now this fits with the more and more better understood geopolitical map of those days in which Issachar only occupied a few cities and towns within their own territory and otherwise moved into and shared places in their brethren's territories. The reason for this was quite simple. The Canaanites that occupied their allotted land were just too strong for them to dislodge. Tola resided in the general area where Avimelech operated. So that when it says he arose to save Israel, it could have had something to do with dealing with the aftermath of the Avimelech debacle. But that's just my own speculation. <clears throat> now, Yair, Jair in English is only identified as being from Gilead and no family heritage is given. Now some think he was of the tribe of Manasseh, but that's only because Gilead was in the area of the half of Manasseh that was on the eastern side of the Jordan River. You know, we have to be very careful with these identities, especially by this time in Israel's history. Much intermarriage among Israelite tribes had taken place and much movement of families and whole clans from their allotted territory into another had occurred. Being from Gilead could mean he was from the tribe of Gad or simply that his family or whatever tribe was living in Gilead made it such that he was identified more by where he lived than what tribe he belonged to. And that was becoming more and more the case in Israel. Now what we do know is that Yair came from a high social status. He judged his area for 22 years, one less than Tola. And he held sway, it says, over 30 cities, each one run by one of his 30 sons. Now, if he had 30 sons, he would have had at least as many daughters, meaning he had a whole bunch of wives. 
This also means he lived as royalty. And that is further confirmed by the statement that his 30 sons rode on 30 ass colts. Asses were highly esteemed as riding animals and often carried very special recognition. So we have here a well-known and large royal family even though the patriarch Yair was only officially known as a shofet, a judge, not as a king. This small mention of Yair and his royal lifestyle gives us every reason to believe that he followed in the kingly lifestyle pattern observed by Gideon and his sons and then fully brought that into play as an overt royal dynasty. This ought to help us to see the significant sea change that occurred in Israel with Gideon when he elevated himself into a status and a lifestyle well beyond any judge before him. And of course, that was all prodded along by those who Gideon had delivered who pled with him to assume the role as their king. Now he refused to take on the title, but it's self-evident that he easily accepted the trappings of royalty. Yair, therefore, had a precedent and likely was also asked to be the king. Yair was the first Shofet to operate now in the Transjordan. There were many fewer Hebrew people on the east side of the Jordan River. And generally they were more isolated from the Baal worship centers that tended to be more concentrated in Canaan where the nine and a half tribes lived. Very probably the two and a half Israelite tribes who took up residence on the east side of the Jordan River had considerably less temptation to fall into idolatry than their brethren on the West Bank. Yet the mere fact that Yair was raised up as a judge by God says that idolatry eventually came to the Transjordanian Hebrews. We also know that during Yair's time there was no oppression from a foreign enemy. So the trouble that Yair was uh, raised up to deal with was strictly in-house, so to speak. The Midianites had passed through this region, but they didn't stay or conquer it. So, as I mentioned early on in our study of the book of Judges, each judge had entirely different conditions to deal with than any of the others. And it's, it, it's difficult to give a perfectly standard definition of a judge as we're going to especially see once we get to Samson. Okay? And we'll continue our study of Judges 10 next week.